Proverbs chapter 31, verses 8 and 9. Hear now God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God remains forever. Amen. Let's pray. God, we do thank you for your word. Thank you for sustaining it for us so that we might have it this morning. It's been read. We've understood it. But we ask now that you would give us more than earthly understanding, that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things, that you would speak to us by your Spirit, lead us. Oh God, change our hearts, encourage us, strengthen us, Uphold us by your righteous right hand. Father, I pray, especially for your people, myself included, that our hearts would be inclined unto you. Lord, that as we continue to stand strong for you in this age, that we would be mindful that you are a great God. So Father, help me Help me to speak words of truth. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing and acceptable unto you. God, you are my rock and my redeemer. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I remember the first time that I ever confronted a bully. I think I was 10 or 11 or it was around fourth or fifth grade and we had a classmate, it was a pretty large school, we had a classmate. He was a really large and a really mean man-sized child who delighted in making kids smaller than him really miserable. Well, one day when we were all out on the playground doing our thing, I noticed him pushing and shoving a little boy about half his size. Maybe you've experienced this, but just something inside of me clicked, Right? I had had enough. I clicked, I went off. So I marched right over to him. I turned him around, I faced him up. He was much bigger than me, but I faced him up and I yelled as loud as I could, that is enough. Leave him alone now. The man child looked at me for quite a long time. He laughed at me and he turned around and he walked away. I can't remember what was going through my mind in the middle of all that. I know I was scared. I remember shaking. Have you ever been scared or nervous and you're visibly shaking? I remember that. And I'm fairly sure that there was a part of me hoping that that one girl would see me do this. What a hero he is. I also know I felt really proud of myself when I was done. When I turned back to go and play with my friends, I I was beaming ear to ear. That much I do remember, but I remember one other thing, and I'll never forget this. As I was walking away, in a matter of just a second, I felt the ground hit me really hard. I became a tackling dummy for the man-sized child. Evidently, he just waited till I turned my back, and he ran towards me, and he clobbered me, throwing me to the ground. He laughed at me. He said some really mean things. And I'm pretty sure at that moment, 
every eye in the school was looking at me, including the one girl I was probably trying to impress. So I was embarrassed. I was shocked. And I was hurt. I was really hurt. So fast forward some 35 years, and I can say with all sincerity to you this morning that even though the outcome, I do not regret doing what I did. I don't regret it at all. It took me a long time to truly learn the lesson that was presented to me that day, a lesson that actually flows from the passage of Scripture before us this morning, a lesson that I hope all of us can take to heart. And here's the lesson. It is always right. It is always right to speak up for God by defending those who are most vulnerable and most helpless. It's always right, even if we get hurt in the process. This morning, we're going to bring our brief series about engaging the world around us as God's people. We're going to bring that series to a close. And as we do, I want to encourage you and I want to challenge you to use your voice, to use your gifts, to use your resources, to use your influence, and especially, don't miss this one, use your heart. Use your heart to defend the lives of all of those who have been made in God's image. To do this, I'm going to do the real preacher thing this morning. I'm not only gonna give you two points, but it's gonna be intro to preaching 101. You ready? First, I'm gonna explain the text. That's what we're supposed to do. And number two, I'm gonna apply the text. So there's your fanciful outline for today. Explanation and application. Explanation and application. It's the basics of preaching if you're taking notes. So let me explain for you. Let's begin there. The book of Proverbs, as many of you know, is a collection. It's a collection of wise sayings, most coming from the wisest man, right? King Solomon, the son of David, the one who reigned over Israel. There are some of these Proverbs that are attributed to others, however. There are some in there attributed to others, like the passage before us this morning. Verse one, if you look back up at verse one, it tells us that these words come from a king named Lemuel. And of course, there's some debate whether Lemuel was a term of endearment for Solomon or not, but just looking at it at surface value and not getting into the weeds of all the debate over that, uh, there are words that come from King Lemuel. But even more, notice what it goes on to say. It's not from his mouth. Where does it come from? From his mom, from his mother. Take heed, moms. Sometimes your children listen and take it to heart, okay? There are words that come from his mother. You see, this wise mother knew the snares that awaited those like her son who were entrusted. He's a king. He's entrusted with much power and much influence. She knew that it was all too easy for those like him to forget those who needed their power and influence the most. That's what those first seven verses are about. Misuse. And it continues in verse eight. And so just looking at some words here, you'll see in verse eight that we have a mention of the mute. Okay, the mute. Speak up for the mute. This is both literal language and figurative 
language. Literally, to, to say mute refers to those who are unable to speak. They're physically unable to speak. Those whose mouths are silent, maybe by some physical infirmity or perhaps even by restraint. They've been gagged so that they can't speak. Or maybe think of some of the, uh, some of the prophets who had had the ability to speak taken away from them. Okay, they're unable to speak. And in fact, I couldn't help but think of Matthew 9, uh, 32 and 33. You might remember this story. You can take a note and look at it later. Matthew 9, 32 and 33. A, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to Jesus. And when Jesus had cast out the demon, the mute man began to speak. And all the crowds marveled. And they said, quote, never was anything like this seen in all of Israel. This miracle that had taken place. Here we see that those who brought this man to Jesus were doing what this verse tells us to do. They were speaking up for him. He had no literal voice to speak for himself. So they advocated for him. There's an example. They bring a mute person unable to speak to Jesus. That's the literal side of it. But figuratively, this, this word also is used and it speaks to those who, though they may have a, a mouth and they may have the physical ability to speak vocal cords and everything else, they can speak words. They otherwise lack access to power or they lack any other type of leverage that can be used for change. They may have a voice, but no one's listening. They have nowhere to go to be heard the book of Esther comes to mind here. The book of Esther. Upon, remember, upon learning that all the Jews were going to be killed, we read in that book that Esther's uncle Mordecai pleads with her to do what? Speak to the king. Speak to the king on the people's behalf. They had voices, but no one would listen to them. Providentially, though, Esther is queen. She's in the company of the king and her bravery to speak up for them had the result of saving many lives. So she spoke up for them. So like those who brought the mute man to Jesus and Queen Esther who advocated for the Jews, the text before us calls us two times, once in eight and once in nine, to open our mouths, to open our mouths for those who have no voice of their own. It literally calls us to speak up for others, to speak up, to not remain silent. And when we think of those who are mute in our day, think about that. Likely, if you're like me, the first and foremost that come to mind, the obvious are babies. The baby whose life is taken in the mother's womb. Though these children have mouths, they are unable to speak for themselves. And though it's clearly shown that they can respond to various stimuli and even feel pain in the womb, we can't hear their cries for help. Though they cry for help, we can't hear them. So here's an example. We're called to open our mouths for them, to speak up, and not just them. I don't want to just stay on that point. There's many other to think about, right? Speak up for all who are unjustly silenced. All those who may have a physical disability, right, who can't speak, that need help. Or again, perhaps it's some type of outward oppression, marginalization, other forms of injustice. Those who are not being heard to speak up for them. That's the heart of this passage. 
It continues in verse 8. It mentions all those who are destitute. In the original Hebrew language, the word destitute, and you might have a note for this, if you were to literally translate it, it's sons of passing away or sons of destruction. This is a reference to those who are facing desperate circumstances, especially those who are near death. The word is used to describe those who you might say in a colloquialism, those who are at the end of their ropes with regard to their circumstances. The next thing is to die. You may picture it this way. They've went tumbling over a cliff and as they fall, we see this in movies and in cartoons, right? As they fall, they happen to grab a hold of a branch right on the edge and they're hanging on with all their might knowing that the moment that gives out, they're done. That's what this is meant to picture for us. I find it interesting that the author of Hebrews in chapter 11, verse 37, you might wanna look that up later, uh, he uses this word as it was carried over into the Greek language. He uses it to describe the prophets of Israel who were mistreated because of their calling. And he lays this word with the same meaning right alongside the words afflicted and mistreated. They were destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Well, helpfully for us, the word destitute in our passage is amplified in verse 9 when it's given further explanation with the words poor and needy. Now, these are common words. We don't have to go to a word study with these, do we? Poor and needy. They're used all throughout Scripture to refer to those who are unable to meet basic needs. The words are applied throughout scripture to the sojourner, right? The homeless, uh, to the widow, to the orphan, to the refugee, to the hungry, just to name a few. We don't have to look far in scripture to see that God's heart is inclined to people such as these. God's heart is inclined there. A key thread in the fabric of Israel's civil law was the people's care for the poor and needy. From the call to welcome the foreigner, to welcome the sojourner into their midst, to gleaning laws, right? If you don't know what those are, the regulations that told you how to harvest your field, to leave some on the edges so that the poor and the hungry could come and take from that and be able to feed themselves. Beyond that, even Jesus as we saw just a couple of weeks ago, taught the value of service to the poor and to the needy. He did it by highlighting the truth that as often as we do that, remember as often as we feed the hungry and clothe the naked and visit the prisoner, we don't just do that to them. Who do we do it to? To Jesus. By serving them, we serve him. And what does this passage call us to do? for the destitute and the poor and the needy ones. Again, we've already said it, we're called to open our mouths, to speak up, to be a voice for them. Notice we're also called to judge righteously and to defend their rights. This is legal language, and it's because in Old Testament Israel, people such as these were not able to represent themselves in the public square. They didn't have representation. Beyond that, they were often treated as outcasts, some derided, whether it was known or not, as just victims of their own foolish decisions. It doesn't continue today, does it? So it was all too easy to take advantage of these people, to exploit 
these people and thus treat them according to a standard that was not in line with God's law or God's heart. That's what mom is saying to her son, the king. Don't forget them. Use your influence, your power for good. That's the focus here then is on judging righteously, doing what is right, not on our standard, but on God's standard, defending their rights. The idea of go to court with them and plead their cause because you'll be listened to, they won't. It's a call to step in, to get dirty, (laughs) get to know the story, get to know the person, have a heart for them. It's a call to step in and apply the same standards, God's standards to all people, irrespective of status. Uh, don't, make a, don't misunderstand me here. It includes punishing the evildoer. It does include punishment. But it also includes a general acknowledgement of the effects of evil upon others. Not only an acknowledgement of evil and sin, but how it affects other people directly and indirectly. It recognizes that to truly defend, we must have hearts that are not just aware of sin as some theological concept, but we need to have hearts that are broken by our own sin. Hearts broken by our own sin and broken by the sin done to others. I can't help but think of a passage I reference quite a bit. It's Jesus' encounter with the leper in Mark chapter 1. Verses 40 and 42, you can write that down. I encourage you to read that in whole later today. But in summary, you have a destitute man, a leper. He comes to Jesus. This man's a literal outcast of society. He's unclean. He's outside the camp. He's afflicted by a terrible disease. And here he comes and sets himself before the Lord Jesus what does Mark 1.41 say if you looked it up? He was moved by pity. He was moved, shaken with pity, moved with compassion. And Jesus not only took to heart this man's condition, man, it's tough. What else did he do? He did the unthinkable. For a teacher of the day, he stretched out his hand and he touched him and he healed him. He stretched out his hand and he touched him. That's scandalous behavior. You don't touch lepers. You would be unclean. You would be cast out. But Jesus doesn't hesitate to enter into his plight. Sure, doing only what Jesus can do, right? Healing him of this. And Jesus is the perfect son of God, right? So he does this, right? He heals him miraculously. But listen, don't miss. Well, that's Jesus, that's not me. Oh, you can't heal that way. But you can pray. You can enter in. You can wrap your arms around. You can love. You can follow his living example of what it means to have our actions reflect a heart toward those who are in most need. And that's the call of this passage. That's the explanation. Bible study with Pastor Dan this morning. That's the explanation. But with that in mind, we move to the application. How do we apply this portion 
of Scripture today. We've touched on some of it. And I'm sure your heads, I see your reactions. They're swirling with thoughts. Maybe you're just sleepy. But your heads are swirling with thoughts. But I hope that your hearts are swirling with emotion as well. I mean, there's probably a thousand places we could go to apply a passage like this. I, I could just list. Here's 20, 20 different things that you can commit yourself to over the next couple of weeks. But instead, I'm going to narrow it down to four action words. Something you can walk out of here and keep these words in mind and trust the Spirit to lead you appropriately. Okay? So first is embrace. The first action word is embrace. I want to call you to embrace the sanctity of human life. That's where I want to begin. I want you to embrace that. What does embrace mean? To hug. I want you to wrap your arms around it and embrace it, embrace it with all that you are. Not a, not a side hug, okay? I'm talking a full-on bear hug, okay? Full-on embrace it. Each and every person. What does it mean? I mean, each and every person who has ever lived, each and every human being has been made in God's image. They've been made in God's image. They are, as we heard from Psalm 139, fearfully and wonderfully made. Every person is a miracle of God. Every person is a miracle. This means that every life is valuable. Every life is worthy of dignity and respect and care. From the vilest sinner to the most devoted saint, there is no life that is not precious. Every life is precious. And as Christians, we must embrace this truth. I don't think you want me to spend the next 30 minutes rehashing all of that, but just last year, we did a sermon series on this idea of being made in God's image. Last January, I encourage you, go and listen to that. When you do that, when you fully embrace the sanctity of human life, even with all your questions, I'm not sure how it applies here, I'm not sure how it applies there, I'm not sure how it applies to what I'm hearing here or what I've heard there. When you do that, you enter into this wonderful thing, which is taking our faith and living it out. It's taking our faith and saying, how does this impact every area of my life? How does this impact how I think about the unborn? How does this impact how I think about the elderly? How does this impact how I think about racism? How does this impact how I think about human trafficking? How, how does this impact what I think about refugees and immigrants? How does this, you know, you see, it causes you to say, wait a minute, I want to think about this biblically. Theology for life. Embracing the sanctity of human life will guide how we think about others and how we treat them. So because I'm on record, I want to be as abundantly clear as I believe the whole scriptures of God are abundantly clear. From the moment of conception to the moment of physical death, as I said earlier, from the womb to the tomb, each and every life is valuable. Each life. So I call on you first to join with me and embrace the sanctity of human life as made in God's image. Second is engage. They're not all ease, by the way. I wasn't that clever. Second action word is engage. 
Maybe not the way you're thinking. I want you to engage your heart. I want you to engage your heart. That's my call. I want you to do so by considering the heart that Jesus has shown to you. Engage your heart by considering the heart that Jesus has shown to you. Do you know how valuable your life is to Jesus? If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, you're a Christian, you know that he left the glories of heaven and he took on flesh, becoming like you in every way except without sin. You know that in doing so, he suffered for you. He died for you. He bore the wrath of God against your sin on the cross. He rose again for you. And in doing, he saved you from sin and death and he raised you to new life in him. You know that he provides you with all that you need for life and godliness, whether it be physical needs or spiritual needs. He's promised to never leave you nor forsake you, but to raise you up on the last day. That's the Savior's heart for his people. That's his heart for you. That's how valuable your life is. Do you know that? Do you spend time thinking about that? Engage your heart in that. Be reminded of the truth and the hope of the gospel. Stand firm on all that Jesus has done. And I hope what happens to you is what happens to me. Because, you know, honestly, I'd rather sit on the couch and watch something on TV sometimes, right? I'd rather ignore all these things going on, pretend it's not happening, and just grab onto my insurance policy that gets me into heaven and glide through life. Anybody else ever tempted to be like that? Yeah, of course. But what I notice is that the more I think about the gospel, the more I think about how Jesus saved me from my sin, that this thing starts to happen within me, like a fire that just grows and grows and grows and grows. And all I can do is say, I want to serve you. I want to speak up for you. I want to love you. I want to serve. I want to be faithful unto you. So I call you to engage your heart by remembering the heart that Jesus has for you, and from that flows our third action word, right? So embrace, engage, now we're gonna act. Act is our next word. Our action must flow from a heart that's engaged with Jesus. It's easy to hear of all the needs, to see the commercials on TV that make you cry, about all the things going on, and then just say, I gotta, I gotta do something to meet this need. But anytime we feel that, we have to ask an important question. Why? Is it because my heart is engaged with Jesus or am I doing this because eh, it makes me feel good about myself? It soothes or salves my conscience. Or are we moved to act because we wanna glorify God. We wanna glorify him by taking up not our causes, but his cause. Are we acting so that all may know of him and his grace? Or are we speaking up and defending life so we can look good or, you know, maybe God will look good to people? Is that why we're doing it? I mean, I want to glorify God. I want to show how beautiful and wonderful he is. 
But that has to flow from a heart like Psalm 115.1, right? Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to you be the glory. And so once your hearts are in check, then act. By all means, act. Speak up for life. Speak up for the destitute and the poor and the needy. Work on their behalf. Listen, feed the hungry, house the homeless, care for the widow, adopt the orphan, welcome the refugee, sit with the elderly, advocate for the outcast, rescue the ones who are being trafficked, call out evil and injustice, write your representatives, even run for office, give your life for others. Do it. Well, that's quite a list, right? Wait, Pastor Andy went too fast. Can you go back? I'm not. It's not about a list because I didn't even name all the ways that we can act. And as I looked around the room, several that weren't in my manuscript came to mind as I know you and what you are doing. We can't do everything individually. We just can't. We all have our unique gifts and our calling. I mean, personally, I'm involved in advocating for the unborn. I believe that the greatest injustice and evil in our time is the senseless infanticide that plagues not only our nation, but the entire world. That issue affects a lot. It affects how I think. It affects how I volunteer. It affects how I vote. You may have another issue. You may have another issue that you're all in on. And that's the beauty of it. Because if our issues are informed by God's word, I want to be clear about that. There's all kinds of issues, but we must make sure that first and foremost, they're in line with God's word. If they are, think about the beauty of the body of Christ. We've mentioned this several times this month. But when each of us takes up our calling, when each of us works towards that which God is calling us to do, and we do it together and support one another, guess what? We're all participating. We're all sharing in what God is doing through us for his glory and for the good of the kingdom. Let's not forget the togetherness of this. We're a family. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. So how will you act? How is God calling you to act? I'm gonna wrap things up by calling your attention to the fourth and final action word. And that's accept. Embrace, engage, act, and accept. I want to call you this morning to graciously accept the consequences. Accept the consequences that may follow when you act on behalf of others. In other words, as Jesus said, you must count the cost. You must count the cost. Standing up for life in whatever form it takes more and more is leading to hatred from the world. It's leading to intense opposition. That's the lesson I learned when I was a kid who stood up to that bully. I mean, I did the right thing. I did the right thing, but the bully hurt me anyway. Bullies don't care. But I can't let that stop me. We can't let that stop us. <laughs> the wise words of the once famous 90s British garage band, Chumbawamba, right? I get knocked down, but I get up again. You are never gonna keep me down. I've always wanted to quote that in a sermon. <laughs> Let it be noted that today, January 23rd, 2022, I got to do that. Jesus told us, don't be surprised when the world hates you. 
So don't be surprised when the world hates you. Take heart. It hated me first. You're not going to win a popularity contest. You may lose your seat at the cool kids' table. You may end up losing your job. You may end up losing your family. Perhaps you may even end up losing your life for serving others who are made in God's image. But here's what you're never going to lose. What you will never, ever lose. You'll never lose the great love that God has for you. You'll never lose Jesus. Nothing can separate you from his love. Instead, I think you and I must simply learn to say what many before us have learned to say. It was first recorded for us by the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 and 8, and I'm going to end with these words. May they be on all of our lips. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as garbage in order that I may gain Christ. May that be on all of our lips. Amen and amen.